Good morning, everyone. I want to take us through a little exercise this morning to prepare us for our passage. And I want you to think back to an experience that you might have had where you um, were in a new place that was far different than anything you'd known or seen before. For me, I have a couple of things that come to my mind. I remember the first time that we went to Mexico City. And I remember being in the city square, the Socola, is that how you say it? Okay. Surrounded by these massive buildings, this huge cathedral. Many of the, much of the architecture in the city is hundreds and hundreds of years old. We even saw pyramids that were thousands of years old. We'd walk into these cathedrals. They would be this ornate design. Everything was covered in gold. It was, it was amazingly beautiful, but far different than anything I'd ever seen before. Then I remember going to Israel and, and walking around places that I had read about in the Bible for my whole life. I remember reading the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount where Jesus gave the sermon. I remember standing in the Jordan River. I remember literally floating on the Dead Sea. I remember all these things being something that, that was more amazing and more beautiful than anything I'd ever known before. It was both foreign and incredibly amazing all at the same time. And I think we probably all had similar experiences where we've been to someplace new that was both amazing and completely foreign to us in that moment. If you can remember what that's like, I think you can better appreciate what Paul must have experienced when he first walked in to the city of Athens. I want to show you a picture of kind of an artist's depiction of what that city might have looked like in the time of Paul. And as you can see, it was filled with architecture. Everything in Athens was bigger than life. There were temples and, and gods and goddesses, all massive works of art. Up on the hill was the Parthenon, much of which still exists today. It was a temple to the goddess Athena. Inside that temple, you don't see it today, but they've reconstructed it. There was a statue of Athena that was over 40 feet tall. You can see the man standing next to her to give you some perspective. And that was one of many idols that were all throughout the city. In fact, at the time of Paul, when he writes this about this account, or when Luke records this account, there were more idols in Athens than there were people. You can see all the different gods and, and goddesses. Much of this is what still exists in Athens today. And what you're looking at would have been the very same thing that Paul would have seen when he first entered into this city. So I want you to step back in time. and Just imagine what it would have been like to have walked into this city for the very first time. You can see this is what Athens looks like today. This is what it would have looked like during the time of Paul. What would that have been like? Amazingly beautiful and yet completely foreign to anything he'd ever seen before. And I also want to remind you that Paul's alone. He's been run out of town in Berea. He wanted, Paul, he wanted Timothy and Silas to join him, but for now, he's on his own. So he's in this majestic city all by himself, 
experiencing these things for the very first time. So if you can imagine that, I think you can better appreciate what it might have been like for the Apostle Paul. Before we look at our passage, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it's amazing uh, to sit here and consider by looking at pictures of things that existed 2,000 years ago, when this very account that we are going to read about actually took place. There are statues, there are buildings, there are things that are there now that were there even then when Paul walked into this city. And so what an amazing sight that must have been. And yet it's in this place that through the Apostle Paul you made yourself known. Lord, I pray that as we open your word and and see your truth this morning, that there would be a a fresh way in which you would make yourself known to us this morning, that you would speak through your truth, that you would reveal yourself through the work of your spirit, that you would open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear so that we can see what you have made known. We pray this in your name. Amen. Turn to uh, Acts chapter 17. And begin reading with me, if you will, in verse 16, where we last left off. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them, speaking of Silas and Timothy in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he was beholding a city full of idols. Remember, I told you, in Athens, there were more idols than there were people. In fact, there are estimates that there were as many as 30,000 idols spread throughout the city of Athens, of all the Greek gods and goddesses that existed in that time. So when it says that Paul was provoked in his spirit within him, what that means is that he was disturbed by what he saw. He was unsettled. He he was disturbed because every single idol was a failed attempt to find the one true God. This city was filled with spiritual hunger, and yet it was dying of starvation. And Paul's heart ached as he was surrounded by people who were lost and desperate to find God. So I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to ask yourself, is that true for you? We may not live in a city filled with statues of idols like you see in Athens, but we certainly have people all around us who are looking for God in all the wrong places. Does that disturb you? Does that unsettle your soul? Does it cause your heart to ache for the lost and broken around you? I mean, I sure hope it does. I hope it does for every single one of us, myself included. May we never lose our heart for the lost and hurting around us. May we never be so consumed with our own little world that we lose sight of the world that we're surrounded by. And may the Spirit provoke us just like it did for Paul. So that we would be just as bold as him to speak truth and love to the people who are around us who are lost and trying to find help. And so let's look at what Paul does when he continues 
in Athens, verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Like we saw last week, we see the same word again. It says that Paul reasoned with those around him. In other words, he had conversations with individuals in a variety of situations. We see here that he goes to the synagogue as he always does, right? And he's having conversations with people with whom he has something in common. Much like he did in every city, he reasons. He has conversations about what the Old Testament Scripture says about the coming Messiah. And in those conversations, he tells them about Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of those promises, just like he did in Berea and Thessalonica, and I'm sure he did the very same thing in Athens. But we also see that he goes to the marketplace, and while he's in the marketplace, he has conversations with people who were there as well. Paul was intentional about engaging with others, whether he had something in common with them or not. And I don't know about you, but when I read that, I was convicted, (laughs) I was convicted because I often don't have conversations with people I don't have much in common with. I'm prone to kind of be to myself. I'm an introvert by nature, right? But here's the reality, and this was the conviction for me as I looked at this passage and saw the example of Paul. I realized that when I have a heart for the lost, I am compelled to go outside my comfort zone. Not limited by what I'm naturally prone to, I am compelled to push out into situations that may be uncomfortable for me. That's certainly true for Paul. He even entered into conversation, we learn here in our passage, with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers of the day. Once again, this would definitely be a place that I would avoid because these are some of the most intelligent people the world has known during this time. I would be so... Uh, I would be so humbled by my own inadequacy in comparison to them, I wouldn't even think about entering into a conversation. But Paul wasn't intimidated, and I believe it was because he was compelled for a heart with a heart for the lost and those who were seeking God. The Epicurean philosophers had this idea that everything just kind of happened by chance. Now, obviously, they were surrounded by all the Greek and Roman mythology, and they might agree that probably there is some deities that exist out there, but according to their opinion, they did not relate to human beings. They were kind of a a different realm, and humanity was left to itself. According to the Epicurean philosophy, you live, you die, and then you cease to exist. That's all there is. The Stoics were kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. Where the Epicureans were more like practical atheists, the Stoics were pantheists. They believed that everything was God and God was everything. You live, you die, and then you kind of absorb into the divine universe. We might look at that as kind of a new age philosophy in today's terms. But the focus of both philosophies was to make the most out of this life because this life is all there is. 
It was a very humanistic view of life. So when Paul shared the good news of the gospel, they thought it was nonsense. They called him an idle babbler. In other words, he's just making stuff up as he goes. It's meaningless. It makes no sense. Others said he claimed, he's uh, uh, proclaiming strange deities. But it was only strange to them because Paul was speaking of a God who was directly involved in the affairs of man. A God who doesn't stand apart from humanity as everything around them would have. But this God actually entered into humanity because of his great love and his concern for his creation. This was far different than anything that was being proclaimed around them. Paul was talking about a meaning and purpose to this life because of the promise of a life to come. And to many of them, it made no sense. Look at how he continues in verse 19. It says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Let me pause there. Centaur. Half man, half horse. And they're telling Paul he's bringing strange things to their ears? Anyway. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. The city of Athens was the intellectual capital of the world, kind of like what we would consider Harvard or Oxford to be in our world today. Here, the most distinguished scholars of that time gathered to pontificate, to share things that were new and different in the world. And on this particular day, these distinguished scholars invited Paul into their classroom. They put him behind the podium, and they sat in the chairs and said, okay, Teach us something new. Talk about an intimidating situation. The Oropicus, also known as Mars Hill, was a public courtroom. Cases were brought before an exclusive group of elders, the most intellectual minds of the day, and they would be heard in a public court so everybody could listen in on what was being said. Paul was put before these men and was asked to explain his, quote, strange teachings. These scholarly skeptics wanted Paul to convince them of this new truth that he's teaching. But as we see in verse 21, that's not exactly true because the Athenians were not people known for their convictions. They liked to talk about a lot of new truths. They just didn't necessarily believe in those truths they talked about. They were more interested in gaining new knowledge than actually believing new truths. Again, they were proud humanists, and they really didn't need any divine being entering into their world. Look at how Paul continues in verse 22. Given the opportunity to speak, it says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. 
What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Okay, this is absolutely genius. And not because Paul is some brilliant scholar. I believe this is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. I believe it's the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made back in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, when he says this to his disciples, and it certainly would be true of Paul in this situation. He says, and when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and authorities, and we might say to the Oropagus before the scholars, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And I firmly believe that's exactly what's happening right now with the Apostle Paul. Immediately, he shifts the focus from his, quote, new ideas to the evidence of their beliefs, of their beliefs. In a sense, he kind of put the ball back in their court instead of him being on the podium and trying to prove himself, he turns it back to their attention and says, well, let's actually talk about you because you clearly are very religious people. There are temples and statues all throughout this city of, of things that you worship. Yet despite the variety of gods, and we know over 30,000, okay, in this city, despite all that variety, they still realize something is missing. Because they had an altar on which they offered sacrifices to an unknown God. Now the root word for unknown is where we get our word agnostic. It literally means without knowledge. So what they're saying is there is something that exists that we know is there but we can't explain. And Paul is, in, is highlighting their own admission that there is something they do not know. And now he is willing to explain what it is they admit they are missing. Do you see what Paul's done here? He's reframed the complete investigation by presenting his teaching as an answer to their question. In other words, Paul will reveal the God They know exists, but they do not know his name. Look at how he continues in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath And all things. This unknown God, Paul proclaims, both creates and gives life to all that exists. Unlike this city filled with idols, this unknown God cannot be fashioned by human hands. Instead of being created by man, man was created by him. This unknown God doesn't depend on man, but man depends on him for life, for breath, and for everything else. Paul says he is the source of life. 
and, and breath and, and everything we need. The one that you know exists. You admit it. You have an altar and you offer sacrifices to him. This one is the reason you exist at all. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This unknown God is the creator and sustainer of life. Look at how he continues in verse 26. Continuing to speak of this unknown God, he said, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. After explaining how this unknown God was distinct from all humanity, Paul explains how this very same God entered into humanity. Even though his glory is distinct from our own, he created us to know him and to be known by him. The reason that they have an altar to begin with is because there is something placed within them by this unknown God that desires to seek him and find him. This unknown God is the creator and sustainer of life, actively involved in drawing us to himself placed eternity in our hearts so that nothing in this world will satisfy what only he can fulfill. Only by knowing this God can we become everything he created us to be. He's the answer to what our heart longs for most. In him, Paul says, we live and move and continue to exist. Once again, Paul then uses their own words as a testament to what he's proclaiming. He said, your own poets have said that we are his offspring. And I think Paul followed this by saying, you're right. In fact, we were created in the image of this unknown God. We don't create his image made of idols with human hands. We are made in his image, the image of the unknown God, the one who created us. Look at how he continues in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to you, to men, that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What Paul has done here is proclaim to the Athenians that this unknown God has in fact made himself known. God has been gracious in their ignorance, but now he is calling them to repentance. And each person is held accountable for how they respond. Because despite what the Stoics taught, we don't just get absorbed into the universe, nor do we cease to exist as the Epicurean philosophers believed. 
Instead, we are eternal beings who will one day stand before a sovereign God. And notice again in verse 31, who will judge the hearts of men in righteousness? Who is it? It's Jesus. The one through whom the unknown God has made himself known. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, so that when you see Jesus, you see God. This unknown God has made himself known through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, what was previously unknown has been revealed. And not only does does Jesus reveal the, the nature of God, but he reveals the plan of God. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom for many in him. The scripture tells us we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. His death and resurrection made a way for a life-giving relationship with God. We are redeemed as a child of God, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He says, I've come that you might not just have life in this world, but life eternal. And Paul says, this is not a made-up story like everything else that surrounds you. And the reason he can say that is because he saw it with his own eyes, both the crucifixion of the Christ and the resurrected Christ right before his eyes on the road to Damascus. This is a God who has made himself known, who stepped into human history to reveal the way of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at how he finishes in verse 32. Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among him was Dionysius of the Arapagate and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You'll notice the crowd was divided on the resurrection. Some were uninterested, others wanted to learn more, and there were two who actually believed, two from this exclusive group of scholars. I think, in my opinion, these are probably two of the most uh, unexpected conversions in all of the New Testament. And I think they believed because they were willing to admit that they needed a Savior. Here they were, think about this, here they were offering sacrifices to this unknown God only to be made known to them that this God is the one who made a sacrifice on their behalf. He's not a made-up story like everything else around them. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the unknown God who has made himself known. I want you to think about that for a minute. And I want you to just kind of step out of Athens and step right into where we are right now and ask yourself, How has God made himself known to you? If this is true, if what Paul is proclaiming, then the question is, how has God made himself known to you? Because unlike the humanistic philosophers in our passage, not only then but still today, might suggest, life is not just chance. You're here for a purpose. You came to Lubbock for a reason. 
You entered to the church this morning for a reason. You heard this passage and the truth of these words for a reason, not by chance. There is a God of purpose and order who ordains all of these truths. He has made himself known to you through his word. He speaks truth to your heart. He has made himself known to you through his spirit, giving you understanding of those truths, stirring your heart with conviction and comfort. God has made himself known through his people, the church. We should forgive as we have been forgiven. We should love as we have been loved. God has made himself known through nature. All the heavens declare the glory of God, the Psalms tell us. But most importantly, God has made himself known through Jesus Christ. In him, we see God's love put on display. The good news of the gospel is an invitation to trust. It's a call to repentance, a a call to put aside worthless idols that stand in the way of trusting in the one true God. I want to put this in perspective in a passage. I've mentioned this before, but it really struck me when I began to read it, um, seeing some things that I hadn't seen before. It's the story of Joshua. They're in the promised land, and he's essentially given a sermon to the people of Israel. And you'll remember the famous words at the end of that sermon. He says, choose today whom you will serve. And he tells them, based on what he's been telling them, you will either choose to serve the uh, worthless idols of the nations around you or the one true living God. Choose today whom you will serve. And he responds and says, and as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what's interesting is that people respond to that sermon with a call to belief. They said, we believe. Why, why would we serve anyone else? And they begin to recount all that God had done. That He delivered us out of slavery in Egypt. He led us through the wilderness. He gave us the promised land. We will serve no others. And then Joshua said something really interesting after their confession. He says, then put away the worthless idols that are in your midst. They were claiming complete devotion without total surrender. And I just wonder how many times we do the very same thing. John Calvin once said that our heart is a perpetual idol factory. (laughs) What he's saying is that we are so inclined to worship other things around us other than God. Now, we may not have statues of stone like filled the city of Athens, But if we value the opinions of other people as more important than the opinion of God, we worship an idol. When we find our peace and security in the wealth that we possess, we are worshiping an idol. When our comfort comes through that which we control, there is an idol in our heart that stands in the way of fully trusting the Lord. Put away the idols in your midst. Choose today whom you will serve. Either the worthless idols that we are surrounded by or be fully devoted to the one true God who has made himself known. The one in whom we live and move and find our being. The God who needs absolutely nothing from us and yet has given everything to us.
James says that every good thing and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting shadow or variation. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In Him we have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority, both in our lives and in this world. The Bible tells us that whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He alone is our rock and our salvation, our stronghold. And in him, we will not be greatly shaken. He alone deserves our worship. So choose today whom you will serve. Choose today who you will worship. And let's be careful not to fall into the same trap as the Israelites where we claim full devotion without complete surrender. Put away the worthless idols and worship the one true God alone. So as Brian comes up, I want to encourage you. We're going to sing um, a hymn this morning. Brian and I each week talk about the passage and what would be good to close and fitting and You know, I'm convinced that some of the richest words of truth are found in some of the oldest hymns. And uh, I want us to use this song as an old hymn to turn our hearts towards God. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but there may be some obstacles in your life in the form of idols that stand in the way of your faith in God. And maybe part of what you do this morning as you close in this song is you put away the worthless idols that are in your midst, and you devote yourself, renew your commitment to serve the one true God. So let's stand together and sing. I want you to stop for a minute and consider the blessed truth of what Paul proclaimed to the people in Athens and why it matters to us today. We serve a God who has made himself known. He's not hidden but he has put his love on display. He's not waiting for you to come to him. He has come to you. He's not needing anything from you. He is giving everything to you. That's incredible truth. And so I just hope that your heart is encouraged by a proclamation by Paul that applies equally as much to us today. Because there are a lot of ideas that are circulated in our world today. There are a lot of, we, we might even say, as Paul said to the Athenians, I can look by the world around you that you are a very religious people. You are a very religious human race. A lot of people searching for something God has already provided. And so let me just encourage you to be encouraged by the God who has made himself known and called you to himself. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much that you don't remain hidden, that you have made yourself known and nothing more beautiful than what we see in the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for putting your love on display on the cross. Thank you. Thank you, God, for showing your power through your resurrection. Lord, thank you for making yourself known. in in putting within us a desire to know you and to be known by you. Father, there is nothing by chance. It is all with purpose. And so I pray that we leave this morning know that once again, 
through your word, through the songs, and through the fellowship of our time together, you have made yourself known. And may we respond accordingly. We pray this in your name. Amen.